Viking is one of the few organizations, I think, that really has that same sort of permission. There's almost nothing in your life that you choose that doesn't have at least some implication for your finance. And so I think banks need to see that as an opportunity, a permissioning to coach beyond some of the borders that they artificially set for themselves. You're listening to Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay, a podcast that empowers financial brand marketing, sales and leadership teams to maximize their digital growth potential by generating 10 times more loans and deposits. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insights series, where James Robert Lay interviews the industry's top marketing, sales, and fintech leaders, sharing practical wisdom to exponentially elevate you and your team. Let's get into the show. Greetings and hello. I am James Robert Lay and welcome to episode 265 of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insight series and I'm excited to welcome Matt Waller to the show. For almost 20 years, Matt has been applying behavioral science to practical problems. You see, after leaving academia, his career as an executive led from startups to the Fortune 500 and back again, before joining Frog, a Capgemini company, as the head of behavioral science, where he is focusing on helping organizations build their own applied behavioral science capabilities while building projects with the Frog team. Matt is also the author of Start at the End, How to Build Products that Create Change, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today because regardless if you are in marketing, sales, service, ops, lending, IT, or on the leadership team at your financial brand or fintech, you can incorporate behavioral science into what you do, no PhD required. Welcome to the show, Matt. It is good to share time with you today. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Before we get into talking about you know, starting at the end and building products that create change, positive change, um, what is good? in your life right now, personally or professionally, to get started, it's always your pick. Well, it's raining and that's good because it's Southern California and we need all the water we can get. Although unfortunately, of course, it's causing mudslides and all sorts of other problems. But generally speaking, I like the rain. I'm from Oregon. So for me, a little bit of, of moisture isn't such a bad thing. Depending on where you are in the world, rain can be a really, really good thing. Or, you know, sometimes uh, being in Houston, Texas, where we get hurricanes, we get more than enough rain and we would love to send that to other parts that uh, can help them out but no it's i think that's an interesting point you know when, when we think about change and transformation perspective is so mm. critical um what's your take on perspective when it comes to change yeah uh as you were talking about the the desire for water to move elsewhere or come to you, you know, in finance in particular, so much of what we do is about perspective. I remember uh, the, so the first, first, when I left academia, first company I ever worked for was a company called Thrive and they were Mint's biggest competitor. We we're working on sort of personal finance and how do you change personal financial behaviors. And I remember looking at the data through the lens of gender, right? Mm. So when we looked at we gave people a financial health score. We want to say, hey, James, given the amount of money that you have, how well are you managing it? You don't want to be a credit score, which, you know, credit scores are just a proxy for do you have money, right? right? Like, I don't want to do that. I want to say, given the money you have, how well are you doing? 
So we would do things like we'd look at savings rate as a percentage of your income, how much money are you saving? And when you look at that in raw dollars, men kick the shit out of women, right? They are saving far more raw dollars than women, but women are saving a much greater percentage, mm. right? And so, you know, reporters would ask me like, well, who are better savers? Cause they love these kinds of like, you know, gotcha headlines sort of things. And I'm like, well, it, because of the gender wage gap, it all depends on how you look at it. As a percentage, women are better at saving as raw dollars, it's men because they make more raw dollars, you know? And it, it is, so fascinating that you can sort of get to these like very, very, you know, sort of tiny details about how you're going to measure something that have massive changes in how you're going to think about something. Um, so I, I like the the notion of, it's one of the reasons I try and get people to be really specific. That level of uncomfortable specificity is something I think behavioral scientists really gravitate towards, right? We want that in order to abstract away perspective, or at least to agree on a perspective, we often have to get kind of uncomfortably specific about where we want to be. You talk about this idea of being a behavioral scientist. And to me, I look at the, the idea of, of behavioral science through the lens of financial services as a tremendous growth opportunity. I think it's one that has been lacking. I think maybe it's just a natural progression to to get to where we're at today. You know, when we look at our research at the macro level, there are larger financial brands that are bringing in chief behavioral officers, you know, to drive some of this. Where, and you're coming from academia as well, where, where has the lag been? Why has it taken this long to get this perspective? And now, Granted, you you know you were working with Thrive all the way you know back it was probably like 2009 2010 time period. Why the lag of maybe getting this at a more of a macro level conversation? I'll use behavioral science to answer the question about behavioral science, right? So in behavioral science, we sort of think about behavior as a competition between promoting pressures, reasons to do something, things that make behavior more likely, inhibiting pressures, things that make a behavior less likely. And I think when you look at the adoption of behavioral science, there are the promoting pressures have been building. I think people, you know, want the things that come with it more. You talked about, about companies starting to do it, like, you know, Julie O'Brien going from Weight Watchers to U.S. Bank, right, to, to head up behavioral science for them, those sorts of moves. But there are really strong inhibiting pressures. I don't know, for example, how to measure the performance of a behavioral scientist, right? So if I'm the CEO of U.S. Bank and I want to hire Julie, like, how will I evaluate Julie a year later, right? Like, what does it mean to say she's done a really good job of behavior change? So I think that's an inhibiting pressure that has caused a lag. I don't know how to measure it. Right. I don't think people know how to hire, right? I think it's a, a lot of them gravitate towards the, well, I'm getting a scientist. So what I really want is this like PhD like sort of person, but people who go so far as to get a PhD in, in a science often don't have the application layer that you need in order to succeed inside of a business. Sure. So you're caught a little bit between like, well, do I want an academic who it's going to be hard for me to extract value from because they don't know how to interface into my business? Or do I want someone on the business side, but who may not understand the, the sort of topic as well? And that has resulted in, you know, we have this, this weird missing layer in the pyramid of behavioral scientists. So I, you know, I have been doing this for, I'm an applied behavioral scientist outside of academia for you know, 15 years, which is pretty much as long as anybody has been doing it. And, you know, we do a lot around sort of creating the community. And there's this problem where there's only a handful of people at the top. There's a handful of people that have been doing this for a really long time, have a lot of applied experience. You know, Steve Wendell, who came, who was at Morningstar for a long time. Um, you know, people like, like Julie, like me, right. There's a, there's a handful of people there. 
And then there's a bunch of people who have come out of more recent master's programs at LSE or UPenn, right? But there's that missing layer at the middle. So you're either like, you know, Weight Watchers and US Bank are competing for Julie and she's going from one major company to another major company. But right. There's only 30 people. And so they're getting traded between the major companies, but you're not really growing anything. Sure. And then you have all of these junior people who have nobody to work for, right? There's no middle management layer in behavioral science where, you know, I can graduate and say, oh, well, you know, I can work for James. He's the director of behavioral science somewhere. He's not a CBO, but there's like a pathway that I can go through. Instead, we just have like CBOs and then new graduates. Yep. And that's a really tough situation to be in as an industry. Well, I mean, let's let's use what you wrote about uh, in your book, Start at the End, How to Build Products That Create Change. And maybe it's it's here. Maybe it's how to, how to build teams that create change. Because one of the principles that you shared in the book is start with the outcomes instead of the process. And I like this perspective. I look at process, you know, it's, it's kind of a definition that I apply to experience, experiences or well-defined processes that have been defined, applied, and then optimized over time, resulting in a positive or a negative emotion. But, but you're saying, no, 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 no. Let's start with, with the outcome because I think in banking a lot of times when we think about experience, we just start with the process. Let's flip this around. What do you mean by this? Start with the outcome instead of the process. Yeah. So when we talk about outcomes, specifically, I mean, behavioral outcomes. So the, the analogy I often use is like science fiction. All of us are authors of science fiction. We want a world that is definitionally fictional. Even this podcast. Every, and then everything we do is about creating that world. Like this podcast is about getting people to do something, right? Like you don't just want people to listen. Listening is sort of the intermediary thing. How do you know somebody's seeing different? I can't pop your brain open and see, ah, yes, I've changed the way James is thinking. The only way I know that I've changed the way James is thinking is if James behaves differently outcome. afterwards. That's right. It's that behavioral outcome. So I always think about like, um, you know, there's every science fiction movie where there's like the multiverse and there's like, you know, good James and bad James and like, you know, good James has a mustache and bad James doesn't or something, you know, who knows? you know, inevitably one of them crosses over and there's some fight and you have to figure out which one you're going to shoot. Like this is a very big science fiction trope. The only way you know is by them doing something, right? You can't open up their brain. Like once they shave off the mustache, they're identical. So the Matt pre this pod, pre listening to your podcast and the Matt post listening to your podcast, unless I actually physically literally do something different, how would I know if I've actually changed their perspective? So it's that emphasis on doing that that behavioral science really brings. Behavior as an outcome. And then, you know, science is a process, right? I think science is this beautiful thing that we've designed as humans to sort of, you know, learn through experimentation, et cetera. And so it's using that, hey, I know where I want to go. I have this vision of a world that doesn't yet exist, but I know that's where I want to be. And then observations about the world that I have and really two kinds of specific observations. One, why would anyone want to live in this other world? Why is it attractive, right? So if James says, hey, after people listen to my podcast, they will write down uh, uh, you know, three things in three months that, that they're going to do, that they're going to focus on, right? That's, an, a, that's a behavioral thing. They either will have done it or they will have not have done it. It's a zero one. They either do it or they don't. I can record seven different podcasts and give them to 700 different people and see, hey, which podcast is most likely to result in them doing that thing, right? 
as a teacher, that's what you're doing all the time, right? You're teaching the same lesson in a variety of different ways and then seeing which way gets the kids to sort of get to the place. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot to learn from that. So, you know, I want to, I want to dive deeper into this because in Banking on Change, I'm introducing what I call the four environments for exponential growth. Exponential growth is where one is growing personally and professionally at the same time, work-life integration. So you could be learning, you could be thinking, you could be doing, that's the actions that we're talking about here. And then we must create that space and time to review what we've done, to learn through those experiences, to then think about how we can do even better through our next round of, of iteration. When I look at the lens of financial services, I think there's you know a lot of doing, but it's hard to pause, to review, to reflect, and then to learn, to think, to do even better. Even someone in the Digital Growth University, it's a program that, that we have. I've had a, a financial brand leader, literally within the last day, and I just posted this on LinkedIn, they talked about the inherent nature and almost the aversion for financial brand leaders to pause and review what they've done. Mm -hmm. what, what, yeah, I mean, what's that? What's going I, on? I here? loved one of the things that you said in there, right? Where you said, the reason I review is to make things better later, right? The whole notion of better only works if we know what better means, mm. right? If we've said, hey, like the point of what I'm doing here is to get people to write those three goals for three months, right? Or those three focuses for three months. If we don't say what that is up front, if we don't say what better looks like, it's impossible to do a good review. So I see a lot of reviews happening, but they're reviews of processes, not outcomes, right? They're sort of, well, did we do this well? Were we happy with the way that we did this? Like, was the doing the right thing? Not, did we achieve our objective? And if you didn't experiment, right, if you didn't try more than one thing, it's hard to know what, like, okay, great. We wanted everybody to write three goals, three goals for three months. We did a thing. We did a, a singular podcast. 60% of people did it. Is that good or bad? Well, it's bad relative to 100, which is what we wanted. Is it better or worse than any other idea we have? No idea. We have a ruler now. We know what it is we measure and want but we have to have done more than one thing. Digital growth is a journey from good to great, but sometimes this journey can feel confusing, frustrating, and overwhelming. The good news is you don't have to take this journey alone because now you can join a community of growth-minded marketing and sales leaders from financial brands and fintechs who are all learning, collaborating, and growing together. Visit digitalgrowth.com slash insider to learn more about how you can join the Digital Growth Insider community to maximize your future digital growth potential. Now, back to the show. Because you have nothing to benchmark it off of. There's no perspective. There's no context or framing to figure out, are we making progress or are we just stuck maybe in inertia? And so when you think about this idea, and I, and I like the idea of outcomes instead of processes through the lens of financial services, through the lens of banking, big opportunities that are available to maybe create or capture through this type of outcome driven thinking for people. 
I'll give you an example of a failure from my own past as a good example of where I think there's opportunity. So one of the first places I worked was Thrive, you know, Mint's biggest competitor. We eventually sold to Lending Tree. You were in the personal finance space. One of the big learnings from that was we only looked at what happened once you already had the money, right? So James goes gets a salary somewhere and then I'm going to budget or I'm going to do other things to like help him manage that money effectively, save, pay off debt, whatever it is. But I'm not paying any attention to, well, is he underpaid? But we know, statistically speaking, women are underpaid, underrepresented people are underpaid. So I think that's a huge opportunity for banking. Banking spends all this money on personal finance tools and other kinds of things to encourage people to save, encourage people to take out loans, encourage people to do the right thing, right? Why on earth are banks not involved in closing the, the wage gap? You, you, more than anyone else in society, profit, right? So- we know, statistically speaking, that women underpaid by, you know, somewhere between 20 and 30%, right? So let's just assume you're a bank and you have 100 customers and 50 of them are working women, right? And all of them are underpaid by 30%. That means you could get a 15% boost in the number of dollars flowing through your organization by closing the gender wage gap. Why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> So now let's let's stay on this because I think this is a super fascinating subject and one that I have been batting around now in my own mind and then also in conversations that I've been having. I wrote about it in Banking on Digital Growth. You know, when you think about financial services, you've got money in, you've got money out. Very simple. You might invest it, grow it, etc. But the behaviors that are tied to that from an individual, consumer, a person, a human being, often run at a subconscious level tied back to environmental upbringing, you know, situations that we can't control, coaching, you know, helping people see, once again, see things differently. Like, for example, if there's, the, we'll say the, the gender wage gap. Maybe that's not even in a person's frame of reference, but if we just brought that up and asked the question, because I think, you know, you can make a statement like there's a gender wage gap opportunity or what is the opportunity to go and consider your your salary? We can't ignore questions. Statements can tend to be ignored, but when you start asking, the, then it's like, I don't know, is that something I should think? So there's this whole idea of building coaching into the financial services model that we're seeing at a very high level now, like there's the financial gym out of New York. It's a membership-driven program. But when we think about this through the, the macro context of banking, whether it be at a national level, a community level, a credit union level, where does coaching fit into some well, of this? I don't think there's any... I think it's no surprise that Julie O'Brien went from Weight Watchers to U.S. Bank, right? Weight Watchers, a coaching-based organization, right, about sort of, you know, accountability partners and community yeah. and sort of like how do you do, you know, to U.S. Bank where she leads that same function, right? She leads some of their coaching teams and other and other kinds of, of things. I think that that I, I think that's really important. I think the key is broadening what coaching means in financial services, mm. right? So traditionally, coaching was a mint. It was control your spending. And that was the place we coached. Maybe we coached on investment, right? There's a lot of white dudes who'd like to coach you on investment. Maybe those two areas. But there's a much richer view of your financial life, including things like your salary, including th like there's a whole variety of different sort of parts of your life 
that finance touches that we need to, like banks need to lean into that. And I think we've seen this in other industries. Look at health, yes. right? Your health insurer doing things like saying, hey, I'm going to help make sure that you get to the gym because, hey, that has an impact on your health. That's not a separate thing. It touches my thing. Banking is one of the few organizations, I think, that really has that same sort of permission. There's almost nothing in your life that you choose that doesn't have at least some implication for your finance. And so I think banks need to see that as an opportunity, a permissioning to coach beyond some of the borders that they artificially set for themselves. I would agree. And I'm going to connect this back to the Weight Watchers example or the gym example, because when we start looking at macro level research, a person's financial well-being impacts their physical well-being. A person's financial well-being impacts their mental well-being. A person's financial well-being impacts their relational well-being. So it really is a tremendous opportunity to look beyond just the commoditized dollars and cents. I always say the, the time is is now to put the transformation of people over the commoditized transaction of dollars and cents. This is how we take banking from good and make it great, make it even that much better. But once again, back to your point, your question before, what is better? How do we how do we objectively quantify the progress there? Because otherwise it's this ethereal pie in the sky and we'll define it differently. So, you know, looking at the world through your perspective, through your lens as a behavioral scientist, where are opportunities to make banking even better going forward for the people that it matters most to? Just people. So I mentioned one, right? I think the gender wage gap is an ex interesting example of a plate, like getting involved in the sort of like, how do people make money and employment side? Hey, yeah. one of your, if one of your banking customers is unemployed, why wouldn't you help them get a job? Like that is good for you. Like help them get a job. Like, you know, there's employment services, things that you could do that are that probably make, dollars and cents cents pause on the point you're doing this personally yourself even on your website you're helping to promote jobs and i think that's a great analogy of you're putting what you're you believe into practice can, can we just go down that path because i think you know practicality here is so important to help say well yeah like here's really simple opportunities looking to apply this knowledge here and in some ways it loops back to our process orientation right like you know, I'm always looking for sort of like, how do we magnify the impact of what we're doing? So you're right. I do open office hours where anybody in the world can send up, spend time, you know, it's first come first serve. And, and so it's a new year. And so in a few weeks here, I'll, re I'll release my diversity report, but we have good evidence from last year that, Hey, when you do first come first served and you don't say, well, I'm only taking intros, you get a much more diverse population of people uh, that you can serve. Mm -hmm. But then how do you, sort of mechanize that. So for example, we have a spreadsheet of like, hey, you know, if you meet with me and you say you're looking for a job, we send you a spreadsheet. We say, great. Like every time you fly for a Bob, put it in this spreadsheet. One of our team members will look and see, do I know somebody there that I can introduce you to? And that's like, you know, you can mechanize that, you know, that somebody has access to my LinkedIn. They just look through all my LinkedIn connections, say, who do you know there? Right. And we can start to make those introductions and make those things more egalitarian. And so I think people often fall down on the like, well, coaching's not scalable, but yeah, it is, right? It just needs process orientation in order to make it scalable. Like anything is scalable given the appropriate process orientation. Yep. And yep. so, you know, if you really, you know, why doesn't, we go back to that promoting and inhibiting pressures for a second, right? It's not that I don't want to help you. It's just that helping you is hard. So if I invest time in making helping you easier, 
I'll be much more likely to help people. You and I were joking before the show about, about lighting, right? And like, you know, how I'm appearing on camera right now. You know, if I have a setup that makes it really easy to, to shoot off a quick video, I'm really much more likely to make videos. I don't need to set an intention or motivate myself more. I just to make it easier to do. The camera's already set up, the mic's already there, like just get it done. You reduce the friction. Um, And I think when you reduce the friction, it's easier for someone, A, to get started and B, continue to move forward with, you know, reinforcing that pattern or behavior with some type of, you know, affirmation or positive reinforcement. And maybe that's the big opportunity to your point in in banking is about friction reduction. So we think of some, let's take, let's go back to gender wage gap and let's talk about asking for a raise. We think about that as often sort of a promoting pressure problem, right? Like, well, people want money and, you know, think about lean in. We just got to tell women, hey, you got to ask, right? As if the problem is a promoting pressure. But I guarantee you, women that are listening right now, like, feel free to send me a note if you don't want to be paid fairly, Right? All women want to be paid fairly. Of course, women want to be paid fairly. It's not a promoting pressure problem. It's an inhibiting pressure problem. I don't know if I'm underpaid. I'm worried that I'll get fired. I don't know how to ask, right? I don't know how to ask successfully. Great. So banks can remove those inhibiting pressures, distribute, like, it is trivially easy to to give people in your bank, you know, your customers access to figure out whether they're underpaid. And it's trivially easy to say, hey, here's a template that you could use to send your boss a like, hey, I found out I'm underpaid. You know, here's the data that I use. Like all of those things are just friction reduction that you as a bank can invest in. Someone at your bank needs to own that, right? Someone at your bank needs to to step forward into the friction reduction role and say, hey, look, like it's not just about continually throwing in more promoting pressures, it's about removing those inhibiting pressures. How easy can I make it to do the right thing? Right there. How easy can I make it to do the right thing? You know, and and, and that's where for the dear listener, someone else as an advocate in this space is Natalie Bartholomew. She's been a guest on this podcast. She has thegirlbanker.com. If you don't know Natalie, just go to thegirlbanker.com. Big shout out to her for the work that she's doing to advocate for women in banking. So a little bit of a side point right there, but make it easy to do the right thing. Because I think one of the big, I don't know, a lot lot of people don't necessarily want to talk about this, but the way banking works is we make money when people make mistakes. And if we can transform that perspective to and I don't, I don't have the answer. I'm still trying to figure this out in my own mind. How can we create value? And through that value, that's how we create revenue. Well, this is why I love the gender wage gap as an example, right? Because it has a clear monetization stream that isn't based on a mistake, right? You make, you issue a debit card or credit card, you make some percentage of fees on interchange as money flows through that, through that, instrument. Mm -hmm. That means if people make more money and thus spend more money, you make more money. This is why I love insurance. I think insurance is another great place because when you're fully capitated, right, uh, in insurance, then, you know, when you help somebody be healthier, you pay less in 
them going to the hospital or direct care costs. And so they win when they're healthier and you win when they're healthier. I love businesses with that aligned business model. I don't think banking has to have a non-aligned business model. I think there are so many lovely opportunities. Yes. Whether those, you know, whether that's, you know, a management fee on a robo-advisor or whether that's money throwing for you debit. Like, you know, there are so many ways to make money that aren't mistakes. No. It seems sad. Uh, that 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 so much of the industry is focused on the mistakes that we make. And I agree with you. And that comes back to, I think, maybe a deeper philosophical realignment is to why, why do we exist in the first place? And when I wrote Banking on Change, the whole digital growth blueprint model, it's a circular model and it puts purpose as the nucleus of the model. It's not even mission. It's not even vision. It's that external why do we exist to create value for other people and how are we creating value for other people? And what I have found is that's sometimes a hard narrative to have a conversation around. Why do you think that is? Let's go back to promoting enemy pressures. If, if doing right by your customer was profitable and easy, everybody would do it, right? Mm. Of course they would. Like everybody has an intrinsic drive to be a good person. That is something we're born with as humans, or most of us are born with as humans. And so I don't think it's a promoting pressure problem. I think it's an inhibiting pressure problem. I think a lot of banks don't, and credit unions, don't know how to pivot away from a model where they're where they're banking on mistakes, where they're making money from, from people screwing up. And so I think that's incumbent on people like you and I and others to reduce the friction to doing that, saying things like, like drawing that parallel for them of like, hey, you probably didn't think about the fact that like you make money on interchange fees and so more money going through is good and that you can actually help people get more money and there are a variety of ways to do that. Yeah, like I think about like the, the you know, what is going on in, in the overdraft world right now and NSFs, you know, you've got a couple of larger institutions who are saying, no, we're, we're, we're not gonna do this anymore. Like we're stopping. And then you've got this, some are like, oh, that's great. We're going to lean into that because that's the right thing to do. Back to your point. And then there are others who are like, yeah, you just took a lot away a lot of our, you know, non-interest income and uh, we're going to fill that. And I'm like, well, fine. Like use that as an opportunity to go look for other ways to create revenue by creating value for other people back to your point, doing the, you know, doing the right thing. That, that's really resonating and like ringing in my head because my senior year varsity basketball coach, coach Carla, I passed away way too early. Just a beautiful, beautiful guy, beautiful soul. Like that's the thing that I learned from him. He, he said it over and over and over again, do the right thing, do the right thing. I think it's character. You know, I mean, I think these are the more, like you said, everyone is born with this intrinsic, you know, perspective to do good, to help others where might we lose some of this once again thinking this through through behavioral science where some why do we lose some of this maybe along the way and maybe it's consciously maybe it's subconsciously i'm, I'm looking to you for this one yeah i mean i think um a lot of it has to do with so we're born with intrinsic intrinsic desire to do good right and then extrinsic forces start to to act on us and it turns out that those extrinsic forces are not costless i always am reminded of the magic marker study so there's this great study in the sort of 70s when when magic markers are first coming out and they take two classrooms right and both get to play with magic markers and at the end of day one 
One of the classrooms gets a good player award. James like comes up to the desk, you get a good player award. Good job today playing with those magic markers, right? Other classroom gets nothing. Day two, same thing, right? Play with magic markers, play with magic markers. James get a good good star for, for, for doing magic markers. Day three, play with magic markers, play with magic markers. Nobody gets a star in either classroom. Who's still playing on day four? Well, the kids who never got stars, right? They're still playing because magic markers are intrinsically interesting. They're intrinsically awesome. They're intrinsically fun to play with. The kids who got gold stars, they don't play anymore, right? Because what they learned was the reason to play with magic markers is gold stars, mm. right? That's the reason to do it. And so if I don't get my gold star, I'm not doing that anymore, right? right? The way we have set up the working world, particularly in banking, yes. right? When you look at who advances in banking, it's a giant system of gold stars, right? It's a giant system of like, well, I'm going to do whatever. Look at look at um, you know Wells Fargo and the scandal there, right? Like cross selling, yeah, that is badly set up motivational systems, right? That if you step back from it, you're going, yeah, obviously. But when you're in it, when you're in the thick of it, when you're like, when someone's yelling at, you know, when shareholders are yelling at you to increase the value, and then, you know, the CEO's yelling at you to increase the value, people lose perspective. Your coach was right, do the right thing. But it's tremendously hard to do the right thing when everybody else is, you know, pushing on you for metrics. And, you know, these are the things that, that, and so part of it's just aligning those motivational forces. Hey, we do good when our customers do good. And are we really clear about that as our business model? Do we know what behaviors we're going to monetize? If I went out to the women of the world and I said, hey, I'm going to help you get a raise and then I'm going to make some money off that. None of them would say that was bad. Every single one of them would be like, fan-fucking-tastic. Good for you. Good for me. It's a win-win-win. It's like that. It's like the idea of a triple bottom line. You know, I want to come back to the, the Wells Fargo point because words have power. Like, that was a whole cross-selling issue. And I'm... I'm a big believer. I wrote about this in Banking on Digital Growth. Help first, sell second. The the sell comes as a result of, of helping people. And I've even had conversations with other financial brand leaders that are building these personal brands, digital brands that are creating a ton of content. They're creating a ton of value for people. And they're like, I will never do a loan with them. I will never take a deposit from them. But it's that intrinsic need to help other people. So, we did another discussion. I had another discussion. And I've, I've been coaching this. Instead of thinking about cross-selling, let's look at this through the lens of cross-helping. Because once someone opens an account with me or with my organization, well, that's an opportunity to get really curious about where they are, where they've been, where they're looking to go next, and then look at it very objectively. And I think this this almost ties it back to where, where your thought is, you start at the end. You start at the end for them and then work backwards from that. Because if maybe that's just another opportunity here because if, if people don't know what the end looks like, if either A, they've never been given the opportunity to think about that because they are struggling from day to day, from paycheck to paycheck, that's a very kind of a, deep question and one it's almost like an impossible answer it's the idea of helping i you know i say people are looking for two things they're looking for help they're looking for hope but but for many people hope has to come before they're even open able willing to receive help yeah you have to believe that things are change you have to have evidence that things are changeable before you are and all interested in change right mm. like when you talk about hope help right like the canonical example is 
you know, we look at we look at young black men, for example, who disproportionately drop out of high school. Yeah. And you say, man, why would you do that? You know that education is going to be good for your future. You know, this is like a dead end. Like, you know, you know, you know. And so people launch campaigns where they're like, well, maybe you don't know. And so I'll just educate you. I'll tell you how good college is, et cetera. Those campaigns have almost no effect. Why? Because they do already know. They also know that they're disproportionately likely to be jailed and disproportionately likely to be unemployed and disproportionately likely to be discriminated against. And so they are doing an objectively logical thing, which is to say, hey, I'm going to go have fun before you stick me in jail. Right. That is objectively logical in the system that we have set up. Right. You have to say, no, we have to meet people. Right. We need to. There is something more and this will pay off and I can demonstrate for you. And that's true. You know, you talk about behavioral outcomes and starting at the end, you know, one of the things we have people do as the very first step in, in any behavior change process is write a, a behavioral statement, right? And the simplified version of this is when a target audience wants to something, some motivation, they will behavior, right? So when someone wants to do something, this is what they'll do, right? And in banking all the time, I work with people and they'll write things like, well, when customers want to open an account, they'll go to our website. Nobody is walking around going like, you know what I want to do today? I want to open a bank account, right? No, they have something they want to do that the bank account is a process, right? Is a thing I do in order to do something else. And people are, banks are very, very bad at understanding what it is at a deeper level that their customers are trying to do, right? They just say, well, I want them to open accounts, so they must want to open accounts, right? I agree with you. And I want to I want to get the why in just a sec, because I wrote about in Banking on Digital Growth, I said, people wake up and say, I need a car. They don't wake up and say, I need a car loan. The car loan, that's the process. The The car, that's the outcome. Where's the gap? What What's holding us back from bridging the gap between outcome and process? Like, it, is it a lack of empathy? Is it a lack of perspective? Is it because bankers are driven, you know, left brain analytical driven leaders and there's a lot of, I don't know, like what's, what's the, what's, what's the the gap here? We go back to that motivation setup. That, yes. You know, that, that, that system that's set up. No bank says at your quarterly review, how well did you help customers do the thing that they wanted to do? Right. They say, here are the metrics I expected of you. I expected you to cross sell 20 units. And so I'm going to hold you accountable to 20 units. Right. They didn't say, Hey, when, so, you know, we actually advocate for, for managing through these behavioral statements, right? So I report to James, James says, Matt, when young Latina women in LA want to be able to buy a car, they'll get a car loan. They'll do it, you know, using our, our, our banking system, right? They'll do it with us. That is an objective outcome that is based on what someone else wants that you can still hold me accountable to. You don't have to say, well, you have to cross sell 20 units. You can say, hey, when the denominator is number of young women who want this to be true, the numerator is how many you help to do this in the right way. Mm. You're accountable to like the denominator and numerator of this, of this thing. That is such a radically different way than we set up particularly banking. And it's why banking, I think, lags behind many other sort of sort of what you might think of as more empathetic systems, right? It would be crazy to run a healthcare system yes. where we said, all right, doc, your job <laughs> is to make sure you do 50 surgeries, right? You got 50 units of surgery you got to do, and you got to do those 50 units of surgery. And, and, and health systems that have tried that have completely broken down, 
right? When they move to systems that are about, you know, sort of the process orientation of, of what you need to do, right? Outcome-based medicine has been dramatically transformative. Where is outcome-based banking, that... right? Where are you measuring that you help the people that you are serving be better off financially than they were a year ago? We hold we hold doctors accountable to this all the time. We can look at things like rehospitalization rate. Like we have metrics where we've established a system to say, did you make someone healthier than they were before? We don't do that in banking, right? We just say, what'd you do to them, right? Not what'd you do for them, but what'd you do to them? That I think is another kind of just key takeaway for the dear listener, outcome-based banking. You mentioned outcome-based healthcare. How does that begin? It begins with a diagnostic study into some some type of pain that someone feels, and then we're going to make a recommendation and provide a path forward. But it's always starting with the end in mind. Starting about the end in mind, I think back to your point about accountability as we start to wrap up here, Matt. I always like to hold the dear listener accountable as best we possibly can. Give them some type of action, some something small, something simple, something low friction that can inspire them to at least move forward and make progress based upon what we've talked about here today when it comes to behavioral science through the lens of banking. What's one small thing, one small recommendation that they can commit to do next? Yeah, let's, let's try writing a behavioral statement, right? So a behavioral statement is when a target audience who has some limitations, wants to motivation, they will behavior as measured by data, right? So try doing that for a project you're working on today at your bank, right? Think about something you're working on and try and tell me if this project is successful, who will be doing what and why? And how would you know? How are you going to measure that, right? So if I'm successful, you know, women are, women are going to ask for and get raises. And I'm going to measure that by like total number of accounts, in which I see, you know, an increase in income within the next six months. Try doing that. I'm not trying you to write, asking you to write a goal for the future. I'm just saying, can you even do that for what you're doing today? And if you can't, maybe you should stop, right? Maybe you should stop doing the thing that you are doing if you can't tell me why you're doing it, right? If you can't tell me the outcome that you're trying to drive with that, that is an invitation to stop and possibly st not do that. Or if you do do it, at least wait until you understand why you're doing it, I, right? There is so much stuff that we do day in and day out in every industry, but particularly in banking, where nobody can tell you why they're doing that other than it's the rules or it's the way it's done or this is what it is. That's not an acceptable answer to me. Repeat it one more time. Repeat the behavioral statement because I think this is so practical that anyone can do. Yeah, let's do, let's do the simple version of this, right? When a target audience wants to motivation, they will behavior as measured by data, right? So when my customers want to what? And don't say, get a car loan, say, get a car, right? What is the thing that they would say? There's a nifty trick to this, which is you can actually, and you can do this with people. If you prompt them with one, they should give you the other. So let's take, I don't know, Uber as an example. James, you took an Uber last week. Why'd you do that? Well, I wanted to go somewhere. Look at that. I prompted you with the behavior. You gave me the motivation, right? James, you got a car loan last week. Why'd you do that? Well, I wanted to get a car. Fantastic, right? I can also do it the other way. James, you got a car last week. Like, how'd you do that? Well, I got a car loan. Great, I prompted you with the motivation. You gave me the behavior, right? That should be true for your customers, right? Mm. So don't accept something like open an account. Open an account is a process. James, you opened an account last week. Why? Why did you open an account last week? <laughs>
right? And I think most bankers can't answer that question. Yeah, because I needed a better way to spend my money or I was tired of getting screwed from this other organization and I needed, I was looking for something better than what I had today. Well, who knows what the answer is, but go find out, right? Ask, Ask. James. That's, that is the, that is the follow-up to the simple activity from you, Matt. You got to go all in on people. You got to ask good questions, listen to them and learn through observation. Matt, this has been, this has been a lot of fun, buddy. What, what's the best way for someone to continue the conversation that we've started here today? You know, I, the great thing about having a weird last name is I'm very easy to find, right? MattWallard.com, you know, Matt Wallard on every social media you can think about because I have this weird extra vowel in my last name. I'm a, I'm an easy guy to find. I have open office hours. You can, you can, you know, first come first serve. You can spend some time with me and ask me whatever you want for half an hour. I believe very passionately. I mean, the, the reason I came on the show and the reason I care about doing this kind of thing is there are a select few industries that are really at these sort of pivot points in human life. Mm-hmm. And banking is one of them, right? It's there at the best. It's there at the worst. It's involved in so much of what we do. And so if we can do it better, if all of you out there, you know, if we can, if we can say, hey, I'm going to reorient myself towards behavior. I'm going to use a science-like process to generate that behavior. And it's going to be good for me. And it's going to be good for them. And I'm going to align my business model against it. That's transformative, right? I think about... <laughs> There are, the UN has has way too many goals, right? They have these core goals, it's like 21 of them or something, right? I mean, it's the same long list of, of, of UN developmental goals. It's hard to find one that isn't, that isn't touched by banking somehow, right? You're at such a, you know, linchpin moment for people that, that, you know, I just think use that power you know, in a good way. And, and, and that'll be worth it for me. And it'll be worth it for you. And it'll be worth it for James and everybody else. And, and please, please accept this as an invitation from the two of us to, to, to rethink what you're doing in a way that serves people. What a beautiful, beautiful way to wrap this up, Matt. Connect with Matt, learn with Matt, grow with Matt. Matt, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Banking on Digital Growth. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. As always. And until next time, be well, do good make your bed. Thank you for listening to another episode of Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay. To get even more practical and proven insights along with coaching and guidance, visit digitalgrowth.com insider to join a community of growth-minded marketing and sales leaders from financial brands and fintechs. Until next time, be well and do good.